Good morning, Harvest. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here this morning, and I'm so glad to be with you. My name is Kenan Vaughn, if I don't know you yet. I've got the privilege of pastoring here at Harvest Church, and um, I'm excited about our morning together. Marlon, it is such a joy to have you here. Uh, Marlon is, a, is a, um, just an inspiration. Steve said it really well. I'm so glad y'all got to hear not only about Big Dog Street Ministry, but about uh, just Marlon's heart for the Lord. It's been inspiring me for over a decade now since I got to know him through our relationship uh, in his time and downline, and I'm thankful for the way you labor for Christ in our city. Um, helps all of us keep up the pace, and uh, so I appreciate you. And Lauren, welcome as well. Marlon's daughter's here with us this morning. I'm excited that she's here, and it's a blessing to meet you and to, to, uh, to have you here. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 if you want to uh, just kind of begin to turn to that. I know we've been in Exodus, uh, so we're taking a one-week hiatus. We will go back to Exodus next week. I've been looking at Exodus 17 already in anticipation of our time, and I'm really excited, but I started to turn there. I don't know what I'm doing. That'd be really bad if I start going down that road. But um, we, uh, I'm excited about that, but I also feel like this week's message is um, uh, not something I had planned, you know, looking ahead at the, at the annual calendar of what we would do, but the Lord just put on my heart over the last two weeks that uh, this particular weekend, five days before the inauguration of President-elect Trump, and falling on MLK weekend, and all the uh, uh, heightened political rhetoric and just the climate of, uh, of our nation that's led to a lot of racial tension, uh, I just felt like there could be a miss. And look, I might be wrong, but I felt like there could be a miss if I didn't take this opportunity to talk about how all that, all that noise and all the uh, hatred and spite and division um, how we relate to that, how that could or could not affect us, and what we must do in order to make sure we shine the light of the gospel into uh, the madness and division that's happening. And so I just was really burdened to speak to that. Like this is a unique Sunday. It's a historic Sunday. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a moment in time. And, um, and I pray that, that God would use this message to, um, to help us. Certainly my goal is, is not to, to give a polarizing message that wanders into the political arena or anything like that. I really, I really feel as uncomfortable giving these messages sometimes as you may feel hearing them. Uh, but I just felt like uh, this is of God, and I hope it is, and I pray that he'll give me the words, and that what uh, I have to say and would be what he has to say through me would be beneficial to our body. Let me say that I've really enjoyed uh, just reading more about Martin Luther King Jr., his life um, as it related to his leadership of the civil rights movement. Uh, really didn't have an agenda to find a great... Uh, MLK illustration or whatnot. I just wanted to kind of sit in some of what, what the times were like then and, and hear his heart. And, and boy, it's not hard to find. We have so many tools today. You can listen to uh, many of his sermons. You can read uh, many of the manuscripts. And just such a courageous and wise leader. And I really appreciate more deeply than I ever have Martin Luther King Jr. and the way that God used him um, as a leader for equality and justice right out of the heart of the gospel, our Lord's own heart, and the way he fought for that peaceably. I was very just overwhelmed with sadness the last couple days just thinking about that he was um, assassinated in our city and the kind of the stain that that's left on Memphis in a lot of ways really saddens me. I'm thankful that the story is not over, that we can continue to progress forward in uh, and that in the story for uh, the racial tension in Memphis is not over, that God is still healing. And I share the prayer of so many of you that one day uh, the Lord would allow our past to give us a future of being an example of how the gospel transforms, heals, and uh, really could be a blueprint for uh, healing and uh, racial reconciliation across our nation. So 
Um, uh, a couple things I came across um, in my own study. I, I really highly recommend to you to read the letter from a Birmingham jail if you haven't read that. Um, and uh, Martin Luther King was in Birmingham at, uh, in, in 1954, uh, uh, I believe. Uh, sorry, 63, sorry. 54 was when the Supreme Court had made a ruling that uh, there would be no more segregation in the school systems, and yet uh, Birmingham was persisting in that segregation. And so um, nine years later, after the ruling had been made, uh, Martin Luther King was there demonstrating peaceably against the segregation that still existed in the schools. He was arrested, and he knew full well he would be, and he was in jail. And uh, while he was in that prison cell, there were eight white pastors who wrote together, formed a letter, wrote a letter or an article that was the front page of the newspaper, and, uh, and he received a copy of that newspaper in his prison cell, and it basically said um, that it, it really uh, took issue with Martin Luther King's role in leading the peaceable protest. It said he ought to wait for the legislation to run its course and to bring forth the fruit of justice uh, that the Supreme Court had mandated nine years ago. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, prompted, I believe, by the Holy Spirit, especially if you just read closely what he's writing, it's, it's really profound. Um, he, wrote a, uh, he wrote a response. He, he literally borrowed a pen from an inmate, and right there on the newspaper, because that's the only paper he had, he wrote his response. And boy, if you read this, uh, it is so powerful. I just, I just wanted to read you just, just a really brief excerpt uh, from this, which touched me, and I think is a, still a timely and relevant word for the church and our church today. So um, he says this. He says, there, there are still questions in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? There was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is weak, a weak and effectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it's an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the power structure of our day would not be consoled by a church's silence when it comes to issues of injustice. When it comes to issues which are the very foundation of the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring light 
and reconciliation and peace and hope and joy and love right into the very mediums of hate and distrust and disunity and fear and loneliness. I pray that in those moments, the church would be the church. That the church would respond the way you responded, Lord Jesus, when you gave of yourself, when you loved your enemy as yourself, when you gave us that privilege to do likewise. You gave us that stewardship to give our lives and to lay down our rights and to lay down our preferences that the gospel might be demonstrated in our lives, that there may be a hope that people literally know is found no place other than in Christ because of the way the church demonstrably carries out the verdict that was won at the cross. Salvation, a righteousness of God that's not according to the law, but it's according to grace by faith in one who died in our place and for our sin. Lord, I pray that the church would have a voice again. Not, not, not because of the way maybe that we uh, organize and protest, and, and sometimes there's need for that, but by the way we live and we love. And we speak to these issues. Not just on Sunday morning, but as a body that lives out of the truth of the gospel Monday through Saturday. In the communities and neighborhoods and places of work and families and dinner tables and where you would have us, that we'd be a gospel-centered people and that we'd fight for justice and righteousness until you, Lord, come and instill those very things on this earth. So I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians 4, if you're there with me, this is the text that the Holy Spirit led me to, to really introduce uh, in... in, in um, bring us some undergirding theology to some points of meditation. I want to leave you today with some points of meditation that I hope will, um, in a really good way, cloud your thinking uh, as we um, uh, proceed down this path of these historic moments of this week and what may happen, what you may see on TV, what you may hear on the radio, what you may uh, see and participate in on social media and those different platforms. I pray there'd be thoughts that we would have that we would be meditating on uh, as we walk through this week where there's great division and fragmentation in our country. We long for there to be unity in the country. We long for God to bring healing. Uh, But even more so, we long that the church would model that. It must. For there to be any hope in the world, there has to be unity in uh, in the spirit by the bond of peace in the church. And so this text is going to, uh, Paul's going to command us, exhort us to that end, and I'm going to give you some um, points of med- meditation. Um, I almost said medication. Maybe, maybe they're one and the same this week. Points of meditation and some points of application when we get there. So Ephesians 4, Paul starts by saying, I therefore, so whenever we come to a therefore, uh, you guys know as well as, it's like a dryer. <laughs> so it's okay, we're getting some clothes dried. Uh, th- there is a... Uh, that's good too. Um, there is a reason the therefore is there. For us to understand Paul, which, and I'll go ahead and give it to you, he's going to say, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. Now, ultimately, it's going to be a manner worthy of the gospel. So for us to, to go, okay, well, wait, uh, I'll just tell you, he's going to call us to this incredibly high bar of surrender. And it's almost unfair to jump into this text without uh, us being in a series on Ephesians where we could have just been, just been dwelling in chapters one through three and the promises that are true of the Christian because they really create the compelling impetus to live as a prisoner for the Lord. 
So by the time you read Ephesians and you get to chapter four, verse one, you go, I'm with you, Paul. What, what is the response? Like your heart is softened to respond to the gospel with the things that he will give us. But not coming to the text having been in a series on Ephesians, let me just, let me just give you some highlights of Ephesians chapter one through three. This, this is the, the place in your Bible where Paul speaks of uh, our being in Christ, being the, that we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are at our disposal in Christ Jesus. This is the letter where uh, he says, um, he chose you before the foundation of the world to be uh, adopted as his sons and daughters. In love he predestined you uh, to be adopted as his. He redeemed you by his blood. By his blood you're redeemed. You have obtained an inheritance because of his willingness to die on your behalf. And then he's given you his spirit which is a deposit guaranteeing that inheritance will one day be realized. Uh, this is the letter where he says, um, we were dead. We were, we were dead in our, in our trespasses and sins. Um, we, we were like the, the rest of the world, uh, uh, objects of God's wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God. He says, because of that gift, you are far off, have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. You've been reconciled to God, and you've been reconciled to each other. He said, you're no longer foreigners and aliens to the covenants of the promise. You are now heirs with Israel. You are members of God's household. You are shares in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. We're meant to be going, Wow. Wow, the mercy of a God who would take us out of our spiritual blindness and awaken us to the truth of the gospel and save us not just from the penalty of sin one day but from the power of sin today that we can live free, reconciled to God, reconciled to our brother. That we can have life abundant on our way to life eternal. And that we would be so, our heart would be so postured to respond in gratitude towards the truth of the gospel that in four he says, now listen, therefore, in light of how you're feeling, softened to the truth of the hope of the gospel, I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord, that's what we are. When I came to Christ, I, uh, I didn't come with demands. I, I, I came with spiritual bankruptcy, recognizing my need before a holy God. Um, and I simply came, palms up, to receive what he had had for me. Like Paul who says, I'm a bondservant. I willingly volunteered my life as a sacrifice for the Lord and his kingdom. I'm a prisoner for the Lord by God's grace. And he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have been called, of the gospel, of the calling of the gospel. Okay, what does that mean? Um, let me say, he's going to give us a little list here, but on the front end of the list, I, I want you to go ahead and know where it's going to end. It's going to end, because there's kind of some missing pieces here between live, living a life worthy and where he, he ends in um, maintain unity in the Spirit. He's talking to the church. He's going to say, I'm going to urge you to live a life worthy of the gospel, and it's going to land on unity in the Spirit. But Paul doesn't jump right to unity in the Spirit. He says there's a few things that are going to be, have to be true of every one of us in our life of surrender as prisoners for the Lord if we want to be a body that, uh, um, that really is unified in the Spirit in a visible, tangible, real, authentic way. By the way, this is what Jesus spoke to in John 13 when he said, um, the world's going to know you by your love for one another. 
And I have to believe Jesus didn't mean by the same kind of natural affinity that formed cliques among us and in this world. By the way that you band together with other folk who like sports or have the same major or uh, grew up on the same side of the tracks or voted the same way in the last election. He doesn't mean natural affinity. He means supernatural bond that supersedes natural affinity. He means there is something that's going to bond you together that the world will look and say, wait, that's not normal, natural love. That runs countercultural and counterintuitive to normal, natural love. That must be of God. Jesus in John 13, that's how they're going to know you. Because they're not going to understand how you would love each other with the differences you bring to the table. You can understand that. Um, in a world of division, in, in a week where that division's gonna be highlighted, it's gonna be talked about like crazy, there's gonna be uh, inflamed rhetoric. The, it, it's almost like the media. They just, they're just trying to figure out how to poke the general public and, 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 and incite us into a fury. I think, that's what they're trying, I think that's what's going on here. And as those things are happening, understand the world, what the scripture is, is beckoning us towards is that the world is supposed to, in all of its disunity, be able to look to one place that has one bond that supersedes and overwhelms all of the differences that is dividing them, and they're supposed to look at the church with the bond of Christ and say, what gives? Why are you not torn asunder by the same things that are tearing our neighborhoods and our community and our country asunder? Why are you somehow uh, immune to the division of our day, culturally-based division, ethnically-based division, racially-based division, politically-based division. Why, why, why are you somehow protected? Like, what, what is going on in there that allows you to be free from that and to love one another in the midst of that? And we're a people that's supposed to point to Christ. Let me tell you what the secret is. It's Jesus. Now, in John 17... Jesus is praying, high priestly prayer, just before he dies. And his prayer, uh, the redundancy of one central issue in his prayer is the issue of unity. God, will you allow these men who I've poured my life into and I've loved, will you allow them to be one? He says, even as you and I are one, some kind of oneness. Like, they are going to have to have this kind of oneness to withstand the attack of a of the enemy through the division of the society. They're going to have to be one like we're one. And he says, so that the world might know that you, Father, sent me for them. The very integrity of their witness will be their ability to be unified amidst their diversity in a world that's divided on every issue that can possibly tear us asunder. And... Uh, the next paragraph of that prayer, you know what Jesus does? He says, and not only for them, but those that'll come after them. Like, that's me and you. Not just for the, 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 the immediate disciples that I've spent, not just for the 11 that have remained faithful, but no, for all that would come after that would bear my name. Let them love one another the way you and I, let them be one the way we are one. And he says it again, so that the world might know that you have sent me. All that is at stake here is the integrity of the gospel. That's it. Nothing more. 
The very integrity of Christ is son of God, son of man, risen savior. Is housed in the idea that there's a power that holds us together supernaturally that supersedes the natural forces that would otherwise divide us. Do you see this? And so here's what he says in Ephesians 4. Paul writes, in light of being a prisoner called to this unity, here's what you must do. With all humility. First thing we do, we don't need to call a council of of unity and figure out how to stay unified. The first thing we'd have to do is repent that we are not lowly as we should be. But unity in the spirit in our body begins with humility in the heart of every one of us. The same humility that led Jesus Christ in his righteousness to consider equality with God not something to be grasped, but to take on human likeness, be found in the appearance of a man, and even then to become obedient to the death, even death on a cross. That kind of humility from him who is righteous. What about us who are wretched? If he would become so undignified for us, might we become lowly for the sake of the gospel that it may become tangible for another? The secret to unity in here begins with humility in here. Then I'm humble. And that humility leads to something. Humbleness in all humility and gentleness, he says. Gentleness, I've preached on this before in here, so I won't belabor the point, but it's, it's meekness. The word is literally meekness. It's power under authority. Charles Spurgeon said, like a bridled stallion. What a picture. Let me tell you the ultimate picture of a bridled stallion. It's 2,000 years ago as Christ hung on this cross. And the accusers and the insulters and the offenders and the mockers literally hurled insults at him to the point they said, hey, uh, if you're really who you say you are, watch this, come on down. And here they are mocking the Son of God. And he could have come down and rained judgment on this earth starting with them, but he wouldn't. It was power under control to the extent that all he would do is say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is meekness. What if that's the way his people acted when we were offended, when we were insulted, when we were mocked, when we were misunderstood? If there was a, there was a zeal for righteousness, there was something that, that welled up in us, there's something wrong, I'm being wronged, and yet it's under control for the sake of the gospel. The bookends of Jesus' life, the incarnation, God in flesh as a babe in a manger, the crucifixion, the Son of God being crucified and mocked and insulted and spat upon by the very ones who he's dying to save who are betraying him. Humility, meekness. Paul says, if you're going to have unity in the spirit, which is, which is central for the world to know that the Son is of the Father, the credibility of the gospel, if you're gonna have, it's gonna start with the Christian having a humble heart, responding with meekness when offended. And he pushes forward and he says, with patience. He doesn't jump to patience. Patience, it's hard to have patience. But patience begins with humility that produces meekness, that produces patience. The word here is long suffering. Understand the context. Willing to suffer long. 
before you defend your rights? Why are you giving up your rights? You're giving them up because Christ gave up his for you and I. You're giving them up because there are those out there who know not the good news of the gospel, but they might know it if they see you lay down your rights on their behalf, especially as they are the ones chiefly offending you. And so he says, suffer long. You may say, I wasn't one of the accusers. I wasn't one of those hurling insults at the foot of the cross. How many times did you and I reject the grace of the gospel before he brought us to repentance? How many times since being saved, how many times since bearing his name have we insulted him and mocked him and spat upon him by the very immorality and impurity and selfishness and deceit and pride that we expose in our lives? And yet the promise that he gives his followers is you don't have to worry. I'm not keeping score, fortunately for your sake. Here's what you know. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Wow. That's long suffering. He's been long suffering with me. Are we willing to long suffer with one another? Of course we'll offend each other. Of course we'll misunderstand each other. Of course we'll have anger. Maybe it's righteous. Maybe it's sinful. Of course we will. Will you suffer long with that to maintain the unity in the spirit for the sake of the gospel? That's what our text is about. And long-suffering leads somewhere. Long-suffering, he says, leads to bearing with one another in love. Bearing. (laughs) Long-suffering. Bearing with one another. Now listen, in love. You're not just enduring in bitterness. It doesn't say bearing with one another in frustration. It says bearing, like forbearing with one another in love. That is tough. By the way, you you don't start there. You start with humility in your heart. You start realizing your bankruptcy before God and what he has done on your behalf that you did not deserve, which you pray leads to meekness, which produces long-suffering, which finally gets you to a place where you forbear in love with your brothers and sisters for the sake of the gospel. Forbearing, 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. You guys know that. The kind of love Peter is talking about is a forbearing love. A love that says, even though you offend me, I won't merely endure that offense, I'll love you in the midst of it. Because God demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Forbearing love, the word for love is agapeo. That's where we get agape. Different kinds of, uh, different words in Greek to describe love, the concept of love, which is uh, so diverse in and of itself. There's eros, which is a, a love that takes. It says, give me, give me, give me. It's often seen as a sexual love. Then there's phileo, which is a brotherly love. There's a give and take. And then there's agape. It's sacrificial, unconditional love. It's merely a love that gives. It gives and expects nothing in return. It forbears in loving even if all that is given back is offense. That's the love of our Lord as he gave his life on the cross for us. That's the love of a father who sent his only son to die in our place and for our sin. Agape. Bear with one another in agape. And then he comes to this line. Eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager is a, 
is obviously a word that carries a sense of urgency. The word here is actually spudazo, which carries two things. It says utmost zeal and a sense of now. He says to eagerly endeavor. Your Bible might say endeavoring or eager or eagerly endeavoring to maintain. There's a sense of we have to pursue this with zeal and we gotta pursue it now. This is not tomorrow. This is not next week. This is the day, and he says now is always now. That every day there's a nowness in pursuing. That's why when we offend a brother or a sister, we're supposed to um, uh, abstain from the table and go get right with them so we can come back in, in right fellowship to the table and take communion. That we don't, that we don't, that we don't let that go. That there's immediacy because we're eagerly endeavoring, there's a nowness and a zeal. We must, because the credibility of the gospel is at stake. Now he says, you have to be eager not to build the unity of the spirit, to maintain it. Understand, Christ has already established it. In Ephesians 2 it says, Christ made the two, talking about Jew and Gentile, made the two one, and reconciled them both to the Father, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility toward God and toward one another. He established unity, and you know what the Holy Spirit does? One spirit baptizes every believer into one body. He takes us all, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, black, white, Hispanic, Latino, everyone saved by grace through faith. He forges us all, presses us all into the body of Christ, and we're one. The Son and the Spirit, their ministry was to establish oneness. Christ in the high priestly prayer, God, let them maintain it. They're going to need supernatural power to be one. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, humility produces meekness. Meekness produces patience. Patience produces long-suffering. Long-suffering produces the ability to forbear in love so that we can maintain what Christ gave his blood to establish. We're willing to sacrifice our lives to maintain what he gave his life to build. The unity of the spirit. There's one more phrase, through the bond of peace. The bond, the, uh, the word is a, 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 gives the connotation of a ligament in a body. Isn't that great? That you get this body, one body, and yet the body is not just a bunch of bones and, and uh, you know, that kind of can, can grind together until the, the body aches and hurts and falls apart. There has to be these things, these ligaments that connect bone to muscle and tendon and, and they grease everything up so that it can function perfectly. Okay? Uh, the ligaments, there's a ligament of peace that what makes us, uh, may, allows us to maintain a union of spirit is only when there's a ligament of peace. What's so great about that is Paul doesn't point us to some ethereal concept of being peaceable with, with one another, not merely. He defined in Ephesians 2 who the peace is. You know what Paul said? Jesus Christ himself is our peace. So we, we only have one shot to maintain unity in the spirit. There's only one chance. And that's if we are willing to forgive one another and bear with one another, and long suffer with one another, and be humble with one another, and be meek towards one another, because of Christ, alive and operative in each one of us. Surrender to him. He's alive in us. He's the peace that greases the structure of our body, so that we can maintain the unity for the sake of the witness of the gospel. Is everyone with me?
Now, that's the text. I want to give you some thoughts. Sometimes Paul will say, this is of the Lord and this is of Paul. Okay, well, that's of the Lord, this is of Kenan. So if you need to take notes on something, it was the former. But I just sat there in my chair this week, hours on end, thinking, how do we get this? You know, it's Ephesians 4. How do we press this into our hearts and being as a local body in the middle of what I see as a threat? I believe what's happening in our community, in our nation right now, is a threat, not just to uh, global political security and uh, peace and communities. I think the enemy is taking what is happening in our nation, and his goal is not merely to, to, uh, to uh, fracture and divide America. Trust me, Satan's interested in far more than that. His dream is to take, and his hope and his efforts are to take the divide that's stirring because of a political uh, transition in America and take that to take down the church. Now that's his goal. That's his aim. And so here we are, set apart for a time such as this, in a historic week, how will we maintain unity in the spirit in the present crisis? What do we do? All right, let me give you some thoughts. Three thoughts to meditate on, and then a few points of application. Thought number one, I want you to meditate on this week. Number one, the gospel bond must supersede, this is a, this is a summary of everything we've said, must supersede all other bonds. Our loyalty to our brothers and sisters in Christ must supersede all other loyalties. Please understand this. The gospel does not ask you to ignore your differences. It doesn't ask you to uh, ignore the reality of your preferences and of your affinities and of your background and of your skin color. The gospel doesn't say ignore that, put that. What the gospel says is acknowledge it respect it, come together around these and be one within them. Like, love each other in the midst of the differences. Matter of fact, the greater the difference, the more profound the love. Do you know that since the inception of Harvest Church over three years ago, we've actually prayed specifically for something that's challenging. We've prayed that God would give us a diverse body. Now, I don't mean merely diverse in, a, well, I mean diverse in every way, but not merely in, in terms of older people and younger people, which we prayed for that. We knew we needed that for discipleship culture. We didn't mean just in terms of affluent people and, uh, and people in poverty. Uh, we, we knew there'd be an awesome chance for the gospel to be demonstrated in the love of the same. But we very specifically prayed for racial diversity, because racial diversity is what has historically divided our city in such a harmful way that the world needs to see and the community needs to see the gospel heal in such a prevalent way. And beyond that, we know what is more obvious and visible when somebody walks into a body in terms of the diversity that's truly in that body, what's more obvious than racial diversity? Nothing. And we want somebody to walk in and understand this is not a Christian clique. This is, this is not just a bunch of people who gather around normal and natural preferences and go to lunch together afterwards and, and you know, see uh, around the, 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 uh, the, the water. No, this is a place where folks who share nothing in common can come together and have a supernatural love for one another. We want folks to walk in and literally be going, wait a minute, before they even hear the first song and the first sermon, to say something different is here. If these people really love each other, there's a power at work in here. You understand? 
We begged God for diversity. Let me, just, let me just say this right now. To anyone who's a minority culture in this room, racially, so to anyone who is African-American, Asian, Latino, some other ethnicity, let me say this. If you are here as a minority culture, meaning, which means to me already, and I don't think about this enough, which means you have already sacrificed some cultural preferences. You've already walked through some, uh, some perceived or real discomfort to be a part of this local visible body of Christ. Let me just say, we're not just glad you're here. You are an answer to a very specific prayer prayed by our leadership since before this church began. And you make this body, there is no other way to say, you make this body richer. We are richer, we are more beautiful, and I promise you our witness is more powerful because you are willing to step outside of the normal, natural affinity and comfort to be a part of this place as a minority culture. Thank you. Understand your value as a part of this body. So the first point is that we have a bond that supersedes every other bond. Uh, and by the way, on that last point, let, 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 if, you're, if you're a majority culture, if you're a white guy like me, you may be like me where I, I don't think about that very often. It's so rare that I'm in the minority culture. I have to go all the way back to some of the teams I played on in my baseball days where, where there was even some kind of 50-50 racially where there might be like, are we okay and do we have to have conversations and can we, think, can we get along even with our differences? Like, I, don't even, I just don't deal with that on the daily. But I'm thankful for those who are willing to deal with that on the daily to be a part of this body. Gosh, I'm thankful. Uh, second one is this. Along those lines, and one more 30,000 foot, is the ground is level at the cross. I know this is kind of a part of the last one, but I just I had to say it again. We don't come to the cross of Jesus Christ as white men and black men and Asian men and Latino men and women uh, and rich men and poor men like we come to the cross as broken men. Understand, that's the commonality at the cross is brokenness. And it's in our brokenness and our shared understanding at brokenness that we begin to develop a, a, a common appreciation and gratitude for what Christ has done on our behalf that diminishes the differences that would otherwise divide us. Understand the ground is level at the cross. There's not a JV and a varsity, okay? And, and by the way, there, there is a mature and an immature, and the maturity has nothing to do with the color of your skin. The maturity has everything to do, listen to me, with this passage, with the humility of your heart. How do we gauge maturity? Starts in here, humility. I don't know about you guys, but all I'll go is, man, I need to get around some mature believers because I need to grow in that area. I don't care what color they are. Listen to me. Maturity begins in our heart. What the mature believer recognizes is there is a real danger of unity in the body leaking when the world pushes the hot buttons of our race and our culture and our political party and preference and you push the buttons, we start to kind of pull apart and you're kind of going, will it hold? Will the gospel bond hold? The mature recognize 
the danger of the moment. And they're the ones that grab it and pull us back together. They're the ones that will sit across from those that may seem marginalized or may seem offended. They can pick up, they can sniff those things out, and they say, talk to me. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Because we can disagree on almost everything and still fight with an eager endeavoring to maintain unity in the spirit. I'm willing to love you no matter how much we disagree on. Level ground at the cross. No right, you're not any more right than me, I'm not any more right than you. We're all wretched and broken, and Jesus is filling in all the gaps as we love each other. Thirdly, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. These are meditation points, but against spiritual forces of evil. You know why this is, you know, you know it hit me some point in the prep that I know why God wants me to preach this. Because the enemy's goal is to destroy us. And when I say us, the church of Jesus Christ, I also specifically mean Harvest Church. The enemy is not pleased by this kind of a gathering where there's some level of diversity and there's the love of gospel superseding and the gospel is being preached and lives are being changed and salvation is going forth. He wants to destroy. So here's a little. He'll start by deceiving you. He'll put all kind of lies in your head about what's true and not true, mostly what's not true about Harvest. And if he can't deceive you, then, then here's the thing. He's going to see if he can uh, disqualify you. He's going to try to bring you into some moral failure. He's going to try to steep you, get a foothold of sin in your heart so that your witness is disqualified. And if he can't deceive you and he can't disqualify you, here's his great trick. This is the ace of spades for Satan. Are you ready? He's going to divide us. He will take the political climate of what's happening this week and say, Bingo! I can even turn brother and sister in Christ against one another around this. And he'll play that ace of spades, knowing that if he can divide us, we'll destroy ourselves. This is not a physical battle. This ain't a black and white thing. This isn't a Republican-Democrat thing. This is a spiritual war against spiritual forces of evil. So you start thinking through that grid, you kind of realign yourself a little bit. Now, those I simply give you as, will you consider those things this week? As you process and take in and watch and see and participate in and pray over, will you, will you meditate on these things for the sake of the unity of the body? And then here's some application points. First, everyone begins with the same phrase. In eagerness, because it's an active, in eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Will you avoid participating in the vortex? I didn't know what other word to use. It's a vortex of gossip. So I borrowed these words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, okay? Gossip, slander, bitterness, clamor, and malice. That's going to happen on social media this week and following. This is a place... We're on a, a relate on a platform of false relationship. Brothers will turn against brothers. Gosh, it'll be tragic. Will you avoid that? Like, there's a lot of things you can do with your angst. Don't just vent them in a way that's harmful to another Christian who doesn't understand what you're coming from, who feels like you're attacking him. You break fellowship. You diminish the witness and the power of the gospel. That's the opposite of what the text says. 
That's destroying the unity of the Spirit. Don't do that. If you just stay off that, you're at least passively participating in the maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Just pray around the ridiculous things that are said and the rhetoric and the hate. Just pray over it. But I think there's an active role. I think eagerness means we go further than, than simply not slandering and not backbiting and not gossiping and not harming. I think it means we do number two, in eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit, find a way to communicate value to those who may feel marginalized based on their cultural preference or the color of their skin in this body. How could you do that? How could you do that? You know, in our, in our family, I've got four little boys. There are, inevitably, every week or two, one of them will be down. It could be a tough day at school. It could be a tough game. Uh, it could be significant things or seemingly insignificant things. Um, I won't go into it, I don't want to shame them, but uh, th- there's some things that you're, that, that's really got you down, okay. Um, but listen, when you see that, I see the shoulder slump, and I, I see the body language, and you know, it's at breakfast, and they're just kind of, you know, not interested in the cereal, and, and you okay, mm. and you know, and you kind of go, the, the dinner table, nothing's really changed, and at night, not much to say, and the next morning, now maybe a good parent jumps on this quicker, but for me, if I see that for a couple days, I'm going, something's wrong. And so I'll grab that child, I'll grab Jonathan, and I'll say, hey, let's me and you run an errand. Where are we going? Let's go get some ice cream. Or, or uh, let's go to Dick's Sporting Goods. We love Dick's. Uh, it's too expensive to buy anything, but we love walking in there and just smelling it. Just the leather of the gloves, gosh. Anyway, I think heaven will smell like Dick's, that's what I think. So, we, we go, and, 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 and man, you know, it, but look, I'm not trying to in a shallow way, like, let me just lift your spirit and not deal. No, let's get away, let's, and, and then it's a chance for me to talk and to have relationships and say, okay, listen, man, the last couple of days, something's happening. What's going on with you, man? Something happened somewhere. Did somebody say something? Did something offend you? Is it one of your brothers? Was it me? What's going on? What do you, like, and you just like press and talk and find out. And then they, they, they speak, they share something with you. And in those moments, parents, and I'm guilty of this a lot of times, we don't, they, we don't need to just fix it right there. Oh, that's a misunderstanding. You've got to know better than that. Don't fall into that. Little bull, suck it up. You need to, no, don't do it right there. Don't shame them right there. Right there, you, you just enter that with them. You just say, man, oh, I get it. That hurts. You find some way to relate, even if it's distant, and you get in it with them, and you say something like this. You know what, man? Life is going to be full of just junk like that. I've been through it. I see that you're going through something. Can I tell you this? I am so glad that God made you a Vaughn and gave you as a stewardship to your mother and I and sat you at our dinner table and that you sleep in our house, that we get to be a part of the family so that I can go through that with you. Like I'm so thankful that I can enter that miserable little mess that you're in that won't last forever. I want to be in that with you because I love you so much. You're so valuable to me. I just want to be in that with you. Do you know that this is a church family? So some, somebody's chance to be sensitive and say, hey, can we get away? Can I relationally go deeper with you? Can you talk to me so that I can know how to enter this with you? Because the privilege is that we're a family. Uh, let, let, me, let me say, 
that's for majority, minority culture, doesn't matter. I, I think that we, I, I want us to all to be sensitive to do that. Everyone to be able to figure out how to value the marginalized. Jesus did that so well, by the way. Gosh, he did that so well. His ministry, it was, it was to the prostitutes and to the tax collectors and to the lepers. Like he, he always found the marginalized and, and communicated deep value to them. Like his ministry left a mark everywhere he went. The marginalized felt valued. We're the body of Christ. How are we carrying that out? To the majority culture specifically, I was reminded in a harrowing way this week of Acts chapter 15. The context for Acts 15 was that there were, the gospel was going forth, not just to Jew, but now to the Gentile. And uh, the Jews, when they were, saw Gentiles coming to Christ, they thought, you don't say. That, that's, that's hard for, I can't even imagine. Gentiles, they're lower than dogs. They're coming, okay, well, we'll let them into the family. They just meet, need to become like us. Like, Gentile needs to become a Jew to become a Christian. So you take on our code of ethics. You take on our dietary and hygienic laws. You gotta be circumcised, sorry. Like, you're gonna have to be a Jew to be a Christian. We're gonna put that on you. We're gonna have an expectation that you'll assimilate into our majority culture in order for you to be accepted here. Now, understand, this, got, this was such a significant debate that the apostles rallied around it. In Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, they had that question on the table. What must we require of a Gentile who wants to be a Christian? How Jewish does he need to be? And when they stamped out the verdict, James announced it, Peter carried it forth, then Paul carries it forth. Here was the verdict. You do not need to be one of us to be loved by us. Do you understand that? You do not need to look and talk and smell and eat and live like us to be one of us. You simply need to be saved by the same grace that saved us and the same Lord that died for both of us. That's it. You simply need to be made by Christ and the Spirit a part of the same oneness, and we will treat you as one. Uh, again, I don't think about these things regularly because I'm predominantly a part of a majority culture. But make, let's make sure our, our attitude, our posture is not was assuming a minority will assimilate into this body and take on its preferences and affinities. Uh, I would say that would be tragic. Let's... Let's not make that false assumption. Let's instead do what Jesus did. Reach out to the north, communicate value, embrace the difference, and celebrate the power of the witness which just got stronger. Okay, number three. In eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit, let me, let me tell you one step further. Adopt a lifestyle of intentionally building authentic, so not like, you know, shallow, like authentic relationships across racial lines. And I get it. I, I know that they, I've prayed and asked God, please don't let anybody on this point just leave me. Like, let, I don't want, I'm not trying to shame anybody. Um, uh, somebody may go, now, wait, what? I'm not a racist, praise God. Uh, but you're saying I gotta go build relationships with somebody of another race, just maintain unity? No, I'm not exactly saying that. Here's what I'm saying in a way that is not to guilt you towards doing anything. I'm just saying this in recognition and standing as a witness to this text with you. I'm saying relationship doesn't happen. Love doesn't happen without relationship. Relationship doesn't happen without knowledge. Like I can't really love people I don't know. Okay, I, I, I can be loving towards them, but I can't really love them if I don't know them. And so here's what I'm saying. My natural affinity and natural preference might lead me to gravitate towards folks like me with the same background, with the same upbringing, with the same socioeconomic status, with the same age and the same skin color. 
There's a natural gravitation that happens to that degree. And if we allow that to dictate the relationship forward, we will literally be a church full of very worldly looking cliques that has nothing but a shallow love for one another. So what I'm saying is, how do you rise above that to have a love that is powerful enough that the gospel can be credibilized to a world who doesn't believe? And I would just say with common sense, well, maybe I could be like one small part, putting one little peg in the wall of defending the unity of the gospel if I had a lifestyle, not, not, not just a breakfast appointment, maybe it starts there, but a lifestyle where I look for opportunities to build authentic relationships with those people not like me, don't listen to the same music, don't come from the same background, aren't the same color, because if I do that, what I'm doing is tearing down the wall that could silently be erected between us in a climate like the one we're in today. But now I've got something here that translates and interprets what's happening out there. And it's dialogue, and there's love, and there's consulting, and there's help me, and help me, and now there's a maintaining of the unity in the midst of the diversity. I am saying if we as a body Every single person had a lifestyle where we gravitate towards the counterintuitive measure of building friendships across racial lines. Yes, I feel like our unity in this place would be profoundly greater than if we simply maintain the status quo and do what's normal according to our culture and our flesh. So you don't have to do that. The tech, that's not an exact exegete here. But might the gospel compel you to live like that for the sake of unity in the spirit? We gotta defend where the enemy's attacking. That's where he's attacking. That's where we need to participate in defending. Finally, in eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit, will you pray with me? I mean, will you, will you pray that this be a place where God protects us from division and seeds of bitterness and racial tension that could become racism, would, would pray for this place. And, and, and will you pray this too? Will you, will you please pray that God would, would um, continue to somehow, by his mercy and grace, bring more people from various races into our body so that the expression of the gospel might be amplified? Pray for that with me, please. And then pray that God would soften your heart. What specifically is your role in maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in the present climate? Ask God to show you uniquely and individually what you can do. Let me end with a quote uh, from that same letter to the Birmingham jail, a uh, letter from a Birmingham jail that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote. He says this at the end, and so uh, I'm gonna take the liberty of changing where he said letter, I'm gonna say sermon. And he wrote this, this was his last couple sentences. If I have said anything in this sermon that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable patience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience, that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. Father, will you bond us afresh by your Holy Spirit 
into the gospel bond of peace by virtue of the blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that that bond would not be easily broken. Though the enemy would love to tear us apart over the common uh, current climate of racial dissension and hatred and rhetoric, may we be a place who tune out our ears to the things of the world so that we be tuned in to the Spirit and to your Word. And may we preeminently resolve to love one another because, Lord, before Martin Luther King had a dream, you had a prayer request. And before the Father in heaven, you said, let them be one that the world might know. And so, God, let us have the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to honor your request. Let your prayer come to fruition in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.